Good morning, church. Man, I love these Sundays where we get to come together and just enjoy updates from our global partners. I was so motivated and inspired. Um, like Frank, I didn't understand much of what was said, but I did have a few years of French in school, so I did see one thing that I recognized. Je suis in Christ, I am in Christ. Uh, what a beautiful uh, truth for us to hold on to and cling to as a church together today, and uh, what an encouraging testimony and update from Bill and Christy. We do uh, have one more week of a memory verse that we have been working through, if I go the right way, on the slideshow, there it is. It is in week of May, so it's the last time that we'll say this verse together as a congregation that we've been memorizing, so let's practice one more time. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God of merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, Exodus 34, 6. Very good, thank you. Today is Memorial Day, and it is a good time, I find. Uh, in the life of a congregation to practice the habit of gratitude and thankfulness. And so I want to take a moment today, and if you're with us at home, you can participate in this. In fact, I would invite you to participate in this as well this morning. Uh, if you are here today and uh, somebody in your family, near or extended, has given their life in service to our country, I would just like to ask you to stand at this time. Somebody in your family, near or extended, that's given their life in service to our country, please stand. If you have served alongside of a friend or a family member, and stay standing, please. If you've served alongside of a friend or a family member who has given their life in service for our country, I would ask you to stand now as well. If you've served alongside a friend or a family member who gave their life in service to our country, stand. And then finally, any and all who have served in any of the branches of the armed service to represent each from each branch those who gave their life in service for our country, I'd ask that you would stand uh, right now. So any and all who've served in any of the branches, please just stand. And as we all are now standing, I want to take a moment of silence. Please remain standing to reflect and remember and then just a brief word of prayer. So bow with me in a moment of silence. Lord, on weekends like these, we pause and our hearts fill with gratitude as we look at the example of those who have laid down their lives for the freedoms that we enjoy in this country. We're thankful for their sacrifice, Lord. And we thank you that we can take time to honor our freedoms, honor their service, and give you glory as well. As we've worked through this book of Exodus together, Lord, we've seen your heart for liberation, for freedom, for your people. And we thank you for those whose lives 
image that sacrifice for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, everyone. You may be seated. <clears throat> so a few housekeeping items before we continue through the book of Exodus today. Next week, uh, many of you have seen in the weekly, next week is our annual church picnic. Make sure that you take time to sign up using your white sheet. There's uh, an opportunity for you to let us know that you'll be here. It lets us know how much food to get. We don't want to run out of food on the church picnic Sunday, so make sure you fill that out today. Let us know that you'll be here. Pastor Bob Reed will be with us next Sunday bringing the message, and we look forward to hearing from him. The following week, we're going to begin our summer series. This is our last sermon today in the book of Exodus, and so uh, in two weeks, we'll begin our summer series, which we've titled Life in the Kingdom, and it's in this series where we're going to be exploring the ways in which Jesus transforms our perspectives and reorders our priorities, causing us to live in pursuit of kingdom purposes in our world today. And then as summer comes to an end, I'm very much looking forward to our fall series where we're going to be walking together through the Gospel of Mark, uh, taking a deeper look at the life of Jesus in Mark's Gospel, and that series will take us the rest of the way up to Advent. Today, though, we turn our attention to our final message in the book of Exodus. This is sermon number 16 in the Exodus series that we've been in since the beginning of the new year. And as we conclude our series today, we have three goals for our time together. First, we want to reflect on seven enduring takeaways related to both God's character and his work from the Exodus narrative. Then we want to explore together the final chapter of the book of Exodus. That's Exodus chapter 40. We'll look at that entire chapter. And then we want to consider the place of Jesus in the book of Exodus and make some final conclusions about how we might form our own lives uh, based off of how we see Jesus through this book. So as we prepare to dive into the text this morning and reflect more on the character of Jesus, let's pray and ask God's help for our time together. Lord, thank you for the power and the active nature of your word. We need it, Lord. Father, there is so much in this world that demands our attention. There's so much that could captivate and lead us into places that are less than who you are and less than where you want us to be. And so, Lord, we come together on Sunday morning in this collective activity, in the study of your word, so that we can remind and rehearse together the place where we need to be. The place where you feed us. And what you feed us from this word, Lord, it's, it's sustaining and it's good and it's useful for us every single day. It's the words in this book, the words of life that should captivate us. That should cause us to live differently in this world. We're thankful for them. We pray that you would use this time of study together today to shape us and form us into the people that you want us to be, the community that you want us to be, and that you would be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
Well, before we jump into chapter 40, I want to take a moment just to review some of the character traits and attributes of God that have been revealed throughout this book as we've studied it together. And there's seven uh, that I wanted to share with you today as a matter of takeaway. First, as we opened up the book of Exodus, one of the first realities of God's character that we come uh, to realize is that God has an active and urgent desire for the redemption and the freedom of his people. The Hebrew people are in bondage. They're in the land of Egypt. And from the beginning of Exodus, what we see is God going after them and going after the Egyptians as well to see their freedom and to see their redemption. A second takeaway is this. God, God has supernatural power to save and set free those who are lost and living in bondage. And we notice this very early on in the book of Exodus. God used supernatural means to free his people from Egypt. He used the plagues that came upon the nation. But he also used miracles like the parting of We've learned through the book is this. God's abiding and persistent presence is with his people. He's with us. That's been a major theme in this book. It's one that's going to continue even into chapter 40 today. Not only is God with us, but as we saw last week, he knows us. He knows us. We are known by the one true God of the universe. And we see this again in this narrative that he will never leave us nor forsake us. He's with us. The fourth takeaway, God gives abundantly and provides in the wilderness. When God set his people free and he led them out into the wilderness, he didn't leave them to fend for themselves. Instead, he provided. He brought manna from heaven. He delivered water to them from a rock. He went before them in a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He provides abundantly everything we need for the wildernesses that we find ourselves in in our day-to-day -day lives. A fifth takeaway from this book that we've learned about God. God's grace, his mercy, and his steadfast love remain and bear with his people even in our sin and failure. All that God had done for the people, everything that he had performed on their behalf to set them free, and in the wilderness, when Moses is up on the mountain and he's tarrying just for a little bit, and the people are scared and they're uncertain, they don't know what's going on, what do they do? They turn to an idolatry, they turn to an idol. And we might think, well, in light of all that God had did for the people, he would have every right to just say, you know what? You're on your own. But he doesn't do that. He bears with us in our sin and in our failure. We also learn that God is patient. A sixth takeaway, God is patient. It goes along with this one. He's kind and he has a forgiving heart, one for restoration and reconciliation with his people when they stumble 
and fall. We've seen this in the third movement. After the people fall into the sin of idolatry, we see God bringing about the renewal and their restoration, forgiving them as they confess and are repentant of their sin. And then a final takeaway from the book of Exodus is we see God's call and design for his people to be set apart and holy. Holiness is another major theme of this book. It's one that's going to come out again today. God's call for his disciples and his design for us is to live as set apart, to live differently as we are participating both collectively and individually in God's right-making work, his acts of justice and mercy and compassion in this world. He invites our participation. He desires our participation. But as we participate, as we're involved, we are to remember that we serve a holy God who says, be holy as I am holy. So these are seven takeaways, uh, ones that I've kind of taken out of the, the 16 sermons that we've spent together uh, through these books, through this book. And with these characteristics of God in view, we turn today to the final chapter of Exodus. So if you have your Bibles, you want to turn them on or open them up. Exodus chapter 40. We're going to start in verses 1 to 11 today. The final chapter, Exodus 40, 1 to 11. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And you shall put in it the ark of the testimony, and you shall screen the ark with the veil. And you shall bring in the table and arrange it. And you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. And you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony and Set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it. And consecrate it and its furniture so that it may become holy. You shall anoint the altar of burnt offering and all of its utensils and consecrate the altar so that the altar may become most holy. You shall also anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. So there's a sense here in the first 11 verses of chapter 40 that Moses is committed to going about setting everything up in the tabernacle just right. If you notice at the beginning of the chapter here, it's a new month. And a new month marks a new beginning. And new beginnings, once again, weigh heavily on the end of this narrative. Since their redemption and rescue into the wilderness, the Israelites have been on a path, a journey of new beginnings. This is all new to them. And the pattern that's been used for the tabernacle throughout Exodus becomes apparent again here in chapter 40. We move from the inside, the most 
holy place in the tabernacle out. And it's really neat to see in this text, the curtains, if you follow, if you want to underline or highlight the curtains, the curtains actually mark out the separate sections of the tabernacle. They're sort of like divisions, natural divisions in the text. Verse 3, the ark is nestled within the Holy of Holies. Then verse 4, one step outside, there's the table of bread and the lampstand. Then again, verse 5, the gold altar and incense in front of the ark of the testimony. Then another curtain. And moving out from there, the altar for burnt offerings, the large basin for washing with water in it. Then in verse 8, the, co- the courtyard followed by another curtain. And after the tabernacle was set up, Moses was to take the anointing oil and sanctify or set apart all of the elements within it. Do we still do anything like this today? Has anyone in here ever been part of a blessing of the house? Anybody do those, those things anymore? I've, I've been asked over the years as a pastor on many occasions when people move into a new house or into a new home to come and to bring anointing oil and to do what, what people would call a blessing of the home. It's kind of a very similar practice. You, you go into the house and you take anointing oil with you and some people don't want the anointing oil on the walls because it does kind of leave a mark. <laughs> Just remember if you ever do that, if you got to decide if you want the anointing oil or not. We, when, when we built a new building in my previous church, uh, we had somebody come in and, and do this, pray through the building, and they brought the anointing oil. And I remember four or five years into the new building, there were still stains from the anointing oil on the walls. Now, thankfully, they put it on in the shape of a cross. So that was kind of cool. There were little cross-shaped oil stains all over the walls. But be careful. And we still do this a little bit today in that regard, where a pastor or a, somebody that, that we look to as a spiritual mentor might come in and, and do a blessing of our home. Moses is blessing this space, setting apart all of the elements within it. It must be made ready for this special presence, this what, what would become known as the, it's a, it's a big word, but it's what's used in some of the Targums and uh, some of the Old Testament literature, the Shekinah glory of the Lord to come and to be among his people. Once the physical space is set up and sanctified, God is going to move Moses towards the consecration of the life that would actually work and serve within that physical space. The people who would work within the tabernacle, they also needed to be prepared for both the role that they were going to have in the tabernacle and the work they were going to do. This group of people would come to be known as priests. First of all, it was Aaron and his sons and then those who would follow in their line. Look at verse 12 of chapter 40. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and you shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the holy garments, and you shall anoint him and consecrate him so that he may serve me as a priest. You shall bring his sons and put coats on them and Anoint them as you anointed their father, that they may serve me as priests. And their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. This Moses did, now follow this, this is going to be an important line, 
according to all that the Lord commanded him. So he movement that we're in, and we've been examining God's heart of restoration and renewal. And in the consecration of Aaron and his sons, we have further evidence of God's commitment to this, right? What was Aaron participating in in chapter 32 earlier in the book? You remember? Idolatry, I hear it. You remember it was Aaron who invited even encouraged the people to bring their golden jewelry so that he could assist them in casting an idol that they could worship. And now, God renewing and restoring Aaron and his sons, it is Aaron who God is calling Moses to bring to the front of the tabernacle so that Aaron and his sons can be washed for the service of the high priest. Aaron and his line, they were going to serve as a perpetual priesthood throughout the generations. It is a role and a responsibility that, unfortunately, they would all too soon take for granted and spoil. Remember later accounts of what became of the priesthood. It did not start out this way, though. And can we think, can we remember and reflect on another moment in scriptures where there was a great leader who was preparing a group of priests for a difficult journey ahead by washing them with water. Towards the end of Jesus' life on earth, there is a moment, you remember? Jesus calls together all of his disciples so that he might do what? Wash their feet. And here we see an image of our great high priest, the true and greater Moses, washing his followers, washing his disciples' feet, the very ones who would be identified as a kingdom of priests. Church, we are a people called out we are a kingdom of priests. We're called out of desperate darkness. We're baptized into marvelous light. We've been set apart by the work of Jesus. Made holy by him. Consecrated for what he's prepared in advance for us to walk in in this life. Back in Exodus, this washing at the entrance of the tent, it was going to prepare Aaron and his sons for lives that were going to be dedicated to the service of the Lord and his people. And so in the beginning of the chapter, God gives instructions to Moses of how to go about setting the tabernacle right. Then he goes about giving Moses instructions on how to go about getting the people who were going to serve in the tabernacle right. And now, in verses 17 to 33, Moses is going to go about the task of getting everything exactly as the Lord had commanded. Take a look at verse 17. We're just going to read down through 21 here. This is Moses now actually doing it. 
in the first month of the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames. He put in its poles, raised up its pillars. He spread the tent over the tabernacle, put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it in the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony again as the Lord had commanded Moses. Now, if you continue to read through this week, maybe on your own time, you'll read all the way through to the end of, of verse uh, 32 there. There's purposeful repetition in this chapter. And it becomes very clear in this section. It actually started in verse 16 with the consecration of the priest. But it continues here in verse 21. We see it again with the ark here. We're going to see it with the table of presence in verse 23. Then we're going to see it with the lampstand in verse 25. Then with the gold altar in verse 27. Then with the brazen altar in verse 29. And then with the laver in verse 32. It's the same line over and over and over again as the Lord had commanded Moses. Moses is going about doing this work, following God's commands and instructions exactly as the Lord desires. And friends, we've, we've talked about this before in other series, and it bears repeating now. The safest and most life-giving way to, for us to live with purpose and effectiveness in this world is to follow God's ways. Amen? That's it. It's a great example of it right here. Moses is doing exactly as God commanded with every detail of the tabernacle. And again, just as one of the primary themes of this book from beginning and now here to the end is we see great harmony between the Genesis account and even the Genesis creation account and the establishment of the tabernacle. Watch this. In the Genesis account, how many days of creation? Six days of creation, one day of rest. We say how many total days? Seven total days. Here we have, in the creation of the tabernacle and the, the establishment of the tabernacle, seven separate acts to set the right place where this special measure of God's presence would come and dwell among the people. And then look at verse 33. Look at verse 33. This is the end of it. He set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and the altar and put the curtain at the gate of the courtyard. So Moses did what? Finished the work. Work was finished. With the work finished, job well done and complete, we move into that final stanza and make note that there's also a contrast that exists here between the end of Genesis and the end of Exodus. So there's many similarities between these two books. We should suspect that. Similar, same author, same God, 
Lots of similarities, but there's also contrasts here. If you remember back to Genesis, when Genesis concludes, its readers are left on a cliffhanger. The promises of God are hanging in peril. God had made promises with Abram. He had said, I will give you land, I will give you descendants, and I will bless you. But as we open the book of Exodus, we're asking the question, where? Right? Where's the land? Where are all the descendants? And how are an enslaved people supposed to be blessed? Right? The Exodus account, for the reader that doesn't already know the end of the story, we lead into the account after reading the Genesis account asking, what's God going to do? How are the people going to survive? How's God going to fulfill his promises? And as we've traversed through the sands of this book together, we've come to find a treasury of God's faithfulness. God is keeping his promises. The people are moving towards the land of promise, a land that they're soon going to possess. Their descendants have grown in number. God has preserved and protected them even in the wilderness. And soon, the blessing is going to be realized. So at the end of Genesis, a lot of hopelessness and despair. But at the end of Exodus, a foreshadowing of great hope. A God who was faithful to keep his promise. Take a look at these last four verses of chapter 40. Foreshadowing. Of a hopeful future. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting. Interesting. Make note of that. Because the cloud had settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. But when the cloud was lifted from the tabernacle, the Israelites would set out on their journeys. But if the cloud was not lifted, they would not journey further until the day it was lifted up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, but fire would be on it at night. And I love this. In plain view of all of the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. This is the happy ending that we all long for. We all love a movie with a happy ending, don't we? I do. As I was reading this this week, I don't know why, for some weird reason, my mind went to the, the, the one Star Wars movie where at the end, isn't that funny, Star Wars of all things, everyone's like in white and like they're, they're, they're walking towards like this royal throne and Chewbacca's doing his, you know, like his thing and everybody's jumping up and down and, and cheering. I thought, what a happy ending. Like that's a, that's a really... Happy ending. It's like a happy ending that we love. And Exodus leaves us with a happy ending. We're realizing and we're seeing the faithfulness of God. And friends, when we realize and we embrace the presence of God with us in this world, everything should be different for us. God's with us now. In a very real and plain way, 
God is with us now. And I think we often overlook and underestimate the power of Emmanuel, God with us. Oh, but what peace we can live with in this world when we cling to that promise. What joy we can live with in this world when we cling to that promise. What hope we can live with in this world when we cling to that promise. God is with us. God's presence, His glory, it was in plain view then. And church, I would argue that it is still in plain view today. Paul says we can see it in creation. We can see it in the church. We can see it when we come to texts like these in his word. But we see it most clearly and most brilliantly in a person. His name is Jesus. And what we come to find is God's presence and his glory, they're, they're both such a great blessing, but also a great privilege. And when we speak of God's presence, we know what the Bible teaches. In regard to God's presence, he will never leave us nor forsake us. He is with us. That is hopeful. But speaking of his glory, that's different. There's testimony of that in Scripture. God's presence and His glory are different. Speaking of His glory, the Scriptures would attest that God has both the power and authority to magnify or reveal His glory and or hide His glory or remove it from among us. And you say, well, where? Where do we see God's removing His glory from among the people. This is one of the most painful pieces of scripture. The people of Judah were living near Jerusalem. Immediately before they were ransacked and taken into captivity by the Babylonians. It was a time when the tabernacle had become the temple. And there was a prophet whose name was Ezekiel. Some of you know this portion of scripture. And because of Israel and the nation's sin, their persistent, unrepentant sin and their idolatry, God was going to allow for the Babylonians to come and to judge the people. But before it happened, he gave Ezekiel a vision. And it's sad. It's painfully searing. Chapter 10 of Ezekiel. Then the glory of the Lord moved away from the threshold of the temple. And it stopped above the cherubim. The cherubim spread their wings and they rose up from the earth while I watched. And when they went, when they left, the wheels went alongside of them. They stopped at the entrance to the east gate of the Lord's temple as the glory of the God of Israel hovered above them. And in this scene, God removes his glory. 
from the temple. The Babylonians eventually come in. They ransack the city. They take the people of Jerusalem into captivity. Sad. But it's not how it ends. Right? And we gather as a church today thankful that this is not how or where the testimony of God's glory ends. One day, God's glory would return. And when it did, it would be more visible and more magnificent and more glorious than it ever had been before. John 1. Now the word became flesh and took up residence among us. We saw his glory. The glory of the one and only, full of grace and truth, who came from the Father. John testified about him and shouted out, This one was the one about whom I said, He comes after me, he is greater than I am because he existed before me. For we have all received from his fullness one gracious gift after another. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came about through Jesus Christ. No one's ever seen God. The only one, himself God, who is in closest fellowship with the Father has made God known. And then if you look into Hebrews, where it's expounding on this reality, Hebrews 1 verse 3, the Son is the radiance of his what? Glory. The exact representation of his essence, and he sustains all things by his powerful word, so that when he had accomplished a cleansing for sins, he sat down. His work was finished. Moses completed the work of the tabernacle. Jesus, when he had accomplished the cleansing for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. But you know, even then, even then in the New Testament when Jesus came, even then most of the religious people of Jesus' day, they didn't see it. They didn't understand. They're looking for a pillar of cloud or, or fire or something to represent the glory of God once again. But Jesus was there as a person. And he's clearly saying to them early in his ministry, I'm the temple. John chapter 2. The Jewish leaders said to him, what sign can you show us since you're doing all of these things? Isn't that funny? What he's doing, he's already doing the signs. He is the sign. Here's your sign. It's Jesus. What sign can you show us since you're already doing these things? He had just turned water into wine. What else did they need? Jesus replied, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up again. And the Jewish leader said to him, this temple's been under construction for 46 years. You're going to raise it up in three days? But Jesus was speaking about the temple 
of his body. So after he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the saying that Jesus had spoken. Uh, we see this person of Jesus, the glory of God, represented in the New Testament. But when we study books like Exodus, we can also see signs and shadows and road markers that point us to him as well. And we've talked about some of these. In our time together over, over the last number of sermons through this book, we've talked about the burning bush and, and water from the rock and Jesus as the lampstand and the bread, the manna from heaven and Jesus clearly seen in the Passover as the sacrificial lamb and Jesus as the tabernacle and the temple. But ultimately in each of these movements, we began with redemption. Jesus is our true and ultimate redeemer. We move then to reformation. Jesus is the one who reforms us, who's sanctifying us, who's working in and through us so that we might be recreated in his image, in the image of Jesus, so that we look like him as we live out our faith here on earth. But he's ultimately in the final movement. We looked at restoration and renewal. He's ultimately also the one who restores us completely. And reconciles us unto God. Jesus is all throughout the book of Exodus. And friends, as we look at his life and the way that he lived, perhaps we can take some examples for how we might live with the same or similar priorities in this world. We're not redeemers. We cannot save people. But we can certainly point others Towards the one who is able. Amen? Something that we can do. We can point people towards where they can find redemption. We can reform through the power of the Spirit within us our own way of thinking, our own habits, our own beliefs, our own behaviors. We can be careful with our conversations and, and look at the patterns of our lives and other believers' lives and see what kind of fruit God is producing through us. Inspect it. Make sure it's in line with the kind of fruit that's supposed to be coming from the life of a disciple. Changing, transforming, reforming the way that we live in this world. And friends, we can be people who bring restoration and renewal when there's brokenness. The broken relationships in this world, they're all over the place. We can help. The same God lives within us. We can help restore relationships, repair relationships, bring healing. We can show the greater way of forgiveness, humility. We can be a breath of fresh air, a renewal to someone who's discouraged or down. Maybe feeling hopeless or lost in this world. And when we're doing these things, we're allowing God's word and his spirit to work within us as we think and live and move through this world. As our team comes, let's pray. Thank God for his word. Father, we give you glory for this book. It's been a good study. We need the bread of life, Lord, manna from heaven, and you give it to us faithfully. The living water, Lord, your son provides so that we never thirst. Everything we need, we have 
because you are with us. And when we're feeling lonely, we can trust in the power and effectiveness of your presence. We can trust that you are faithful to carry us, to hold us, to walk with us, even through the valleys of the shadow of death. We don't have to fear. Your perfect love, Lord, has cast out all fear. You are the God of redemption, the God of transformation or reformation, and the God who restores and renews us, gives us endurance and hope to live in this world as a people reconciled unto God through his work, the work of Jesus. Lord, we just ask that you would help us to live effectively as salt and light in the places that you've put us and bring you the glory as we do. In Jesus' name, amen.